3: Hello and welcome to the 1912 Exiles podcast, the Newport County podcast made by the fans. For the fans, I'm Ed. It's another pot of two halves today as we continue our January February series of interviews. In the first half, Reese and I will be exchanging notes on the Notts County and Chillingham home games. And then in the second half, there's an interview that i mentioned a few times with Martin Calladine about his book, No Questions Asked, How Football Joined the Crypto Con. It's a really great conversation, so stay tuned for that later. Um, but before we start properly, I want to thank all the listeners who contributed towards our Ko-Fi account. As always, link is in the show notes. If you can spare the price of a Bovril, uh, we'd be very grateful. Big thanks to David Williams for his contribution. And thank you also to our monthly donors, your Mark Williamses, your Hamids, your Hoylegans, your Daniels, and your uh, Rosette WhatsApp groups. We are working on sorting out a little bonus thank you for that select circle of top tier listeners. Right, to business. Uh, I was at Rodney Parade in the rain on Tuesday night for the visit of Knotts County, and Reese was there yesterday for the visit of Gillingham, and neither of us know much about the game we missed, so let's try and fill in the gaps in each other's knowledge. Reese, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, good. Um, I walked away from Tuesday night against Knotts County with the strong feeling that the result of that game would be defined by what happened on the Saturday against Gillingham. Because if we beat or got a draw against Gillingham, we could basically write off Notts County as a bad day at the office, an aberration, one of those where you come up against a team and a a player, in the case of Jodie Jones, just out to prove a point. Whereas if we'd lost to Gillingham, it might have taken on a bit more significance. Um, But yeah, in the end, having got the three points yesterday, I've kind of already put Notts County out of my mind. Was that the same for those who were at the game yesterday, do you think?
4: If we'd lost two on the bounce, then that may have brought our nice run to an end with a bit of a bump. But since um, the 23rd of December, we've essentially been League Two's form team. So, yeah, as you say, the Notts County result might be an aberration. But by the sounds of it, on the day, we were um, we were just completely outplayed. Uh, but yesterday, I thought the, the first half um, never really got going but by either team. Um, second half, we got hold of the ball a bit more. We, I think we were trying to draw Gillingham um, out a little bit. We kept possession really nicely. Uh, we worked the ball really nicely down the left. Uh, and that ultimately resulted in the Will Evans hooked volley, yeah. um, which was a really nicely taken finish. He, he said um, in his post-match press conference, he wasn't really thinking about it too much. He, it was more of a hit and hope. And I think because he hooks it into the The far corner, the goalkeeper was expecting it to go the other side and I think it wrong foots the keeper. But, you know, taking the ball like that and getting the power and the direction that he did on it is still quite a good skill. So, fair play to him and the goal-scoring run carries on.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, as you say he talked about it as just an instinctive hit and hope thing, but that's exactly the sort of thing that you do try when you score 20-odd goals and everything you, you're you trying comes off. You know, last season's Will Evans would have controlled that, played it off, you know, tried to get get it perfectly under control. This season's Will Evans is a, a different beast altogether. So I, I think it's a confidence thing, isn't it? The other thing that really struck me watching the, um, the replay of it was that it was quite an unusually patient build-up For us, you know, there was lots of steady, quite possession based passing in the build up to that, which, you know, isn't what we've seen at other times this season.
4: So the second half, they stopped pressing us as much as they had in the first half and allowed us to keep the ball. And what that resulted in us doing is playing it along the back line quite a lot until they came and pressed. And I think that was opening space up in midfield then. I would have liked to have seen us keep doing that later in the game because we did the typical thing that we do of dropping deeper and deeper and uh, just having a line of defenders along the 18-yard box and wave after wave of attack coming at us, which, you know, in fairness, it worked, but um, I don't think it does anyone's blood pressure any good.
3: <laughs> oh no, no, exactly. Um, and yeah, of course, done the double now over Gillingham, who I think I read, certainly they're rumoured to be the have the second highest wage budget in all of the fourth division, which... Uh, I know is partly because last year they spent a fortune in January to keep themselves up and now they've probably been lumbered with a load of players who were good enough to um, secure survival but not to kick on. But even so, it seems to me like they've got a lot of very big, strong players but there's not much finesse to them. I mean, like I say, you were there yesterday and and I wasn't but I'm very underwhelmed by Gillingham this season from what I've seen.
4: Yeah, I read in the Argos earlier on that they're the league's lowest scorers as well Mm -hmm. which For a team with the second largest budget in the division, you'd think they'd be free scoring. You know, goals cost money, don't they? But they they had that big striker up top, Um, Is it Hawkins. Mm. Um, He was ginormous. And I thought our defenders between between the three centre halves, they marshaled him really well, which was a worry when, you know, without Delaney there, that we didn't have someone to match that kind of physicality. But the referee let a lot go, which plays into the hands of James Clark wrestling people, which he's very good at not the biggest centre-half in the league, but he's very good at um, just winning those tussles.
3: Yeah, yeah, I saw you uh, saying on Twitter that the ref was taking a very laid-back approach and we were able to deploy our our brand-new <laughs> ref alert graphic. Was it the usual thing of just lots of wrestling going on against the likes of Will Evans?
4: He was letting a lot of the niggly stuff go, which I think initially in the first half played into their favour more because they were more up for that kind of thing. Um, but then we kind of started getting involved with it. I don't know whether Cockle had a word at half time and said, look, if, if the ref's going to let this go, then you need to match it. And and I think we did. But there was there was two incidents in particular which stood out and the one where I deployed our shit ref graphic. So Will Evans went up for a header and um, the left centre-back for their team. He just took him out in the air and he had a hefty landing. And, you know, th- like I said on Twitter, that, that'd be a yellow card in rugby because he's just played the man in the air and let him smash into the floor. But um, the referee gave a throw in. And then second half, especially when um, we were under a bit of pressure and we got the ball forward and just outside the 18-yard box, Charles Lee controls the ball, um, is facing away from their goal um, and their defender just cleans him out. Uh, the referee booked Charles Lee for diving and Charles Lee went off injured about five minutes after that. So hopefully that's um, that's not a serious injury because I think he was just starting to come, come back to his best. I think that's the best um, I've seen him play in a little while actually. Um, I thought he did well yesterday. So. I, I did
3: see, yeah, someone saying that uh, Mr. H.W.J. Charles Lee Esquire, Let's give him his full title. It was a, a cut rather than anything kind of muscular, so sort of thing that that you know, presumably a bad cut that forced him off, but sort of thing that should bounce back from relatively quickly. Because yeah, I saw other people saying the same thing that he had a a really excellent game yesterday. Feels like he's found his found his legs a little bit now.
4: Yeah, his work down the left hand side with um, Scouse was really good and Will Evans had a couple of chances before his goal where he was making that almost trademark front post run now mm. when it was worked nicely between Charles Lee and Scouse and then played in for Will.
3: Scouse has been coming under a little bit of pressure I've I, I thought certainly after Tuesday a few people seem to be getting on his back a little bit I mean he certainly stuttered a bit recently I, I did think it was a little bit uncalled for on Tuesday because he was basically marking the best player in the division in in Jody Jones someone who's only playing at this level because bad injuries have have meant he's sunk at least one division probably two beneath his abilities and you know for Adam Lewis he's still learning his trade he'll he'll probably put that performance and this this slightly indifferent run behind him and it sounded as though he'd done that um, yesterday with yeah involvement in the the build-up play to the goal and and so on Um, I did see Sean who does the Newport County Thoughts uh, blog questioning whether we'd want him back next year or whether we might be able to trade up do you have a a view on that
4: um i thought he made a couple of mistakes yesterday but he uh, like the whole team he was better in the second half and at this level no player is going to be perfect i think what he does give you is um a dangerous ball in from the left hand side and when you've yeah. got players who can make intelligent runs forward that's a real asset to have i don't think i think he's a perfectly serviceable league two left back yeah. Um. My main concern over maybe signing him permanently would be his injury history. Yeah. Because in his two seasons with us, he's missed considerable amount of times both both seasons. And um, there's only so many players in a squad that you can take that risk with. Uh, especially as we have a smaller budget. Um. I can't see that changing. Um. Under the new ownership either. I think we'll continue to live within our means. So you can only take the risk on players who have uh, probably an above our normal level of talent but a below average injury record you can only have so many of those yeah. in the team and you need a few scott bennett's mickey Demetrius who will be available 40 plus games a season
3: yeah i mean that actually brings us on i suppose to the other big thing that's happened which is this injury with ryan delaney really sadly out for the rest of the season now um and, yeah, personally, I think that's a, an enormous blow. He's the captain. He's given some immense performances. And also, a little bit like Mickey Dimitriou, he 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 never he basically never has two poor games in a row. You know, they're all fallible. They're all human. They're all fourth division footballers. They will all have the odd poor game here and there. But the thing I really like with Delaney is that if he has a bad game, he will follow it up with a really, really good one. Um, now, I, I think I'm right in saying, although I haven't been able to find proof positive... I think he's out of contract in the summer. I think he only signed for one year initially. Do you think he'll get an extension, particularly given what you were just saying about, you know, you can only carry a certain number of players with bad injury records?
4: Yeah, I had a look on transfer market earlier on. It looks like he's out of contract. I would think that we probably would try and offer him something. Mm-hmm. He's, he's been very reliable. He's also a good physical match for a lot of the teams that deploy big strikers. But Delaney's also a left-footed sided left um, centre-back, which is always nice to have as well. Um, Especially if you're going to play three centre-backs, having your left-sided centre-back being left-footed is a bonus. Like you say, he's been very consistent. He very rarely has a bad game. He is our captain. I would think that we'd at least offer him a new deal. It's obviously then up to him whether he thinks he can go somewhere else and get better.
3: But you thought Jameson looked uh, solid when he came on?
4: Yeah, I think it's a difficult position to come when you've been out with a long injury um, and you come back into a game in the 80th minute or so and your back's against the wall defending. But he looked fairly fit. He was getting up in the air. I think the other long-term injuries coming back, Zanzala looked further away from being um, match ready.
3: That's probably a reflection of not just the length of time Zanzala has been out but also the nature of the injury i think was that bit worse than uh, than jameson so and yeah zanzala's one who i can't see us offering another contract to i think he's he's probably had his had his chance really hasn't he um it's a result that leaves us on uh, 46 points so 2 points off the the bottom playoff place i mean the fourth division table is mad at the moment you've got eight points covering teams from first place down to sixth place and then from seventh the the last playoff place where harrogate are um who are on 48 points um you then have two points covering it all the way down to us in 14th place on 46 so you've got yes two points covering seven teams And then eight points covering um, six teams above them. So it feels as though basically there's seven teams going for that last playoff place.
4: And if Crawley win their game in hand, it'll be down to 15th as well.
3: Yeah, quite right. Yeah, Crawley are not out of it yet. Um, How how are you feeling about it? How positive are you about our playoff prospects? Is it really just a bit of a lottery now at, at this point? Just get your head down. Don't worry about the table. Just try and win as many games as you can and then see where you are in kind of April
4: time. Well, it'd be good because we've been in such good form. It'd be good to carry that confidence and those results um, forward. And it comes at a good time when we're going to play a lot of those teams that are around us in, in that playoff picture. It's more hope than expectation that we reach the playoffs. But at the start of the season, given the state of affairs, if most fans had been offered, still being in with a share of the playoffs come March and a cup run, um, that brought half a million quid in, they probably would have bitten your hand off.
3: 100%. And um, it's
4: keeping the fans around as well. Um, yeah. So we had 4,000 there yesterday. Um, so some of those people who had come just for the FA Cup games, um, looks like some of them are coming back. And I think there's a real buzz, a positivity around the club um, that started kind of around Christmas time. Uh, so, yes, it's looking really good, and I think if we can carry that into the end of the season and through into the summer, we can be really excited about what the future holds.
3: Hundred percent, and the fact that we've got a lot of players who are coming towards the end of their contract, it's not actually the worst thing in the world because it, it it does mean that they are you can keep them motivated over the next uh, few weeks as well, and you know use that as a little carrot to dangle in front of them. Let's kind of finish up the chat. This bit of the chat, then, in terms of usual business, player of the pod, who are you going
4: for? Difficult one yesterday. Um, I thought Bennett and Clark were superb marshalling the giant striker, but I'm going to give it to, um, Seb Palmer Holden, who came off after about 80 minutes and he could barely breathe. He yeah. had just left absolutely everything out on the pitch. Um, and his chasing and harrowing of the, um, center backs, he had a couple of runs in behind that were really smart. Um, a really nice cutback that was really well defended. Um, that Charles nearly got on the end of. Uh, yeah, I thought you were superb yesterday. Uh, but second half, every, everyone played well. To be fair,
3: fantastic. I think it's for me. It's got to be Ben Bauer. Yeah, Scott Bennett slotted back into defence. Took the captain's armband in Delaney's absence. Kept a clean sheet yesterday. He just kind of takes care of business, doesn't he? Um, again, he you know talking of contract extensions, big hints during the week that he wants another contract. Hard to see him not being offered one. So uh, yeah, upper Benno. Uh, great stuff. Shout outs and beefs. There are a few things that I thought you might throw into the mix for this, but you you go where you want with it.
4: So you you put it on our show notes as a beef, but um, I'm actually going to put it as a shout out because in the block next to mine in the Bisley yesterday, there was a group of kids who sounded like they couldn't have been more than 10 years old. On their own, I think they must have had permission to swear from their dads because every time the opposition goalkeeper wanted to take a kick... Um, they were all calling him a sh*t, And every time the lino sprinted back to the halfway line as the goalkeeper went to take the kick, they were all going, <laughs> and it was the um, most entertaining part of the first half for me. So, yeah, so shout out to them.
3: Fantastic. Uh, did you have any beefs with the M4 uh, closure on your way over from Wiltshire?
4: Yeah, it was fine until I got off the motorway and then every man and his dog decided to go over Belmont Hill. Yeah, it seems weird not to do that sort of thing at night, but I got there.
3: You seem you seem remarkably chilled out. So, uh, yeah, let's let's stick with that. Um, I don't have any shout outs. I will pursue a small beef on behalf of a proud member of the pod, Ian Street, who was grumbling quite rightly about how difficult it has been made for those who want to get um, Harrogate tickets, uh, because Harrogate Town, in their infinite wisdom, have decided that despite the game being moved to a uh, a Tuesday night, Um, they're going to make it uh, no sales on the day. So for people like Ian who don't live in Newport, can't get to the ticket office, aren't able to buy online, You know, if they want to decide on the day, I'll come along. Or I think particularly in Ian's case, they can persuade a few friends to come with them. They can't get tickets for the away end. There is no good reason to be doing this. It can't be police advice because we're only going to be taking 100 or so on a Tuesday night to Harrogate. Um, This is just the club presumably deciding they can't be bothered to open an away ticket office so um sorted out harrogate not good stuff and you've made streety upset and if you pick if you start a beef with streety you start a beef with the beef with the rest of us so uh yeah right i think that's probably it for this half of the pod unless you've got anything else to say reese no
4: i think that's it for me
3: in which case a big thank you from me to to you reese for being part of that little chat
4: yeah thank you very much nice to speak to you And
3: after the break, we will have the interview with Martin about his new book. But before that, let's have a word from our sponsors.
0: There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.
3: Right, welcome back. Um, One of the great things about doing this podcast is occasionally it gives you an excuse to speak with people whose work you really admire, even if they're not Newport County fans. And we've managed to do it a few times on the pod. We've chatted with some of our favourite football writers Uh, a few years back, I spoke with Daniel Gray, who writes beautiful, whimsical prose about the things that uh, always remain brilliant about football, seeing floodlights in the distance, contested drop balls, walking to games with your father. Um, I've also spoken a few times with Tom Lines, who does a a Walsall podcast, but he's very, very funny uh, and clever football writer uh, in general. And then there's also the man who we have on today, Martin Calladine, who came on a few years ago with James Cave to discuss their book, Fit and Proper People, which looked at bad owners how to avoid them and it also charted their own terrifying first-hand experience with one particular putative football club owner who reacted very badly to being asked questions about what he was doing with a lot of other people's money Um, and as luck would have it Jack and Ian both also had the pleasure of uh, finding Martin at their table when they attended the FSA podcast awards due late last year and we managed to persuade him to come back onto the pod to talk about his new book so uh, welcome Martin.
2: Thank you very much. No no persuasion required. Any opportunity to appear on a, an award-nominated podcast is, is what I'm delighted to uh, to accept.
3: Well, thank you very much. Uh, before we get on to your new book, I do just want to ask you one really quick question about your own team, Reading, because so much of your work is about cruddy owners and the cruddy ways that they treat football clubs and their fans. And I just wondered where you think Reading's current travails sit within the, the cruddy owner hall of fame and whether you see a, a way out for them.
2: Sure. I'm a bit ambivalent about this one because he's not one of those guys who I think was look had came in with malign intentions. I don't think he was looking to asset strip the club or, or flip it for a massive profit. He is one of those rarest things, which is like somebody who is as rich as he is clueless. He was kind of like a, a junior Todd Bowley. And, and everyone hates Di Young now. But I think there's, there's a really hard thing for fans to face up to, which is he poured Hundreds of millions of pounds into the club, hundreds of millions to try and get into the Premier League. And unfortunately, that was mostly wasted. You know, he took a load of bad advice and now he's stopped doing that because he has financial problems. And people are rightly angry that, you know, players aren't getting paid, staff members aren't getting paid, the hour has been cut off, all of these problems. But, you know, until quite recently, most fans supported him because they liked that he was spending big. And this is the thing that's been on my mind for a while is that, you know, um, there was a period of time where in for three years running, we spent more than 200% of our income on wages. And the the fact is, most fans cheered it on, right? Because I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who are campaigning now quite impressively against him. But a lot of those people were furious when people first started to raise the alarm. Like, you know, I did four or five years ago. The club was not being well run. It was irresponsible. And I think there's something here which we need to recognise that there are bad owners, you know, wrong whatever. But by and large, I think most fans secretly want bad owners. Um, they don't want clubs that live within their means. You know, they don't want fan-owned modest clubs that just want to keep existing um that that can say you know that's the most important thing and i don't you know i have to accept that as a result we will not challenge for promotion every year what most fans i think want is not sustainable spending they want uh successful overspending you know they want someone to come in and spend loads of money and buy their way up the table and that's the things we celebrate we celebrate it like at, at Brighton, um you know everyone thinks what a great job they've done they didn't do that he didn't do that with money they generated themselves. They've spent it very wisely, which is what people want. But those people are so vanishingly like kind of rare. And so you know, I think the challenge is, yes, Dai Young is a terrible owner and there's a non-zero chance he's going to end up with the club being destroyed. But you know, the, the, he sold the ground to himself. The ground has got covenant on that can only really be used for football. So I'm I'm relatively at ease with it. It may mean a further relegation, may even have been administration. But for me, the challenge with all this is, are fans prepared to say... Would I be happy with none of that happening? Would I be happy with someone coming in who would say, we will not spend a penny we don't have, or would they boo them?
3: Tell you what, that is a really timely reminder for Newport fans. Having just, um, in the last few months, moved from a position of fans owning the club to selling to Hugh Jenkins, the former Swansea City owner, um, and a lot of fans go, great, well, the shackles are off now. We can go out and spend big and, you know, try and get ourselves promoted out of the, the football division. That is uh, an important reminder that yeah, care for what you wish for and, and living within your means is is actually a really valuable and important thing in itself. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's actually quite a nice place to start. So the new book is called uh, No Questions Asked: How Football Joined the Crypto Con. Um, it does an excellent job of unpacking not just some of the specific examples of how certain cryptocurrency schemes have preyed on football clubs, but also some of the more fundamental shortcomings of crypto and and how it's marketed and it also explains really well for novices what all of these kind of terms and setups are Um, but just kind of tell us in your own words what you set out to examine in the book and what you think the big picture messages are from it
2: Sure. well i mean i think there was like this transformative moment for me was when i when i first uncovered the manchester city three key scandal which um some of your listeners maybe have heard of which was that man city did a deal with a crypto firm that, that literally didn't exist, and it, and it took me only a day or two to unpick and show you this wasn't a, a licensed company. It didn't have an address, didn't have a phone number. All the people that were on their press release were entirely fictional, and more than that, Man City didn't have any information about them. Um, they'd signed this deal with these people, and they knew nothing. And within a day or two, there's bad publicity, and they they dropped the deal. And at the time, you know, this is quite a few similar things seem to be around. But what unusually about that one is I, I got in touch with this person who said to me, well. This isn't just a uh, like an up-and-coming crypto company. This is the new face of a rolling scam that's worth about £4 billion. Uh, pounds, and they've been ripping people off all across Europe for, for several years. Um, and I thought, well, this is Man City, I'm notionally one of the best-run commercial operations in the world. And, and not too long after that, I found this deal that Fulham had done with this kind of a pyramid scheme, which is, in the most basic way, stealing money from people all across West Africa uh, and Southeast Asia. And that's when it began to think about this kind of bigger story that, you know, whether you think crypto was a a total scam or not, you know, which it is, but you, you people can differ about that. What was actually happening was that football clubs were taking huge sums of money from what were at best kind of unregulated companies and sometimes literally organized crime gangs. And they were doing so without any due diligence at all, not even 15 minutes worth. The basic due diligence kind of the anti-money laundering checks you would, you would do if you worked in an estate agency and you were renting someone a room in a flat. And the result was that companies and criminals were able to use football as this recruiting tool, you know, to, for high-risk, volatile assets that, in many cases, cost people their entire investments. Um, and that happened all across the top flight of English football, and very far down into the pyramid as well. And it just you know, if that isn't a scandal, where all of this has happened, all this money has been lost, and nothing has been done about it, then you know, then I don't know what is a scandal. And and more than that, what's going to happen when crypto bounces back, as it is? what's going to stop this from happening again and and my worry is that that nothing is going to stop it
3: yeah yeah absolutely and you know through the book you set out a litany of different um crypto approaches all of which are are problematic in in different ways you know there's stuff in there about things people will be familiar with around like uh, nfts non non non-fungible tokens which yeah the uninitiated unenlightened of us will associate with Snake oil salesmen trying to get people to pay thousands, often in crypto, for digital cartoons of um, bored-looking apes and so on. But you explore this idea of like football-related NFTs, which really briefly was seen to be a lucrative market for football clubs. Is that kind of how you see it? That these are these are just like inherently problematic assets, if that's even the right word, that have no place in uh, in in kind of football culture.
2: I mean, yes, I, I really do think that. So. I think it's understandable that some people got taken in by some elements of crypto. So, like, you know, it sounded kind of dimly plausible, right? Yeah, you know, there's this new form of payment, and it can cut out banks, and it can, you know, do something, sorry about the blockchain that's transformative. And and you know, around the time, like by like by 2019, 2020, everyone knew at least a friend of a friend who'd got into crypto in like 2015 and had made a few hundred grand. So, like, that seemed plausible. If you know, increasingly, that appears flawed. But NFTs were just something else altogether. You know, they, like, like you say, you, know, you they, you're going to buy something, something unique, this piece of memorabilia, but anyone could copy it. And, and weirdly, even though these things were going for like a million dollars, some of these these the the bored ape stuff, they all look really ugly, right? <laughs> so that's really strange. This is a new form of art that has no artistic merit at all. Um, and so it was transparently a fact. You know, it was a scam. Uh, clubs got greedy. It made no sense. And and I think clubs just closed their eyes and held their nose. Uh, you know, I spoke to people who worked in the business, uh, and they, the clubs saw the money that NFTs were, were earning, and they didn't say to themselves, you know, how does this thing work, or you know, does it work like they say it is, or is there some way we can make sure our fans have any protection if they're getting involved in this new, exciting technology? Um, but they didn't. They said to NFT companies, make us as much money as quickly as you can. And you know, of course, now 99% of NFTs are, are literally worthless. You know, that Money is irrecoverably lost. It's gone. It was the digital equivalent of selling you know empty boxes out at the back of white vans. And, and when these things went under players just deleted their endorsements and the clubs just you know they shrugged their shoulders. Um, so you they took some cases, they took millions from fans and they d- gave them something that didn't hold its value for even a few months. So you you know the, the quite famously Liverpool sold about 9 million pounds of NFTs, which you know within about three months of workers. Imagine if the Liverpool this season strip right if it fell apart after one wear or one wash, and fans would, you know, they would complain to trading standards and they'd get credit card chargebacks and the club would be forced to refund them that. But, you know, when they did it with NFTs, which were the shoddiest thing possible and lost everyone their money, there wasn't an apology, there were no refunds. So that whole bit is 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 inexplicable in one sense, because I think everyone deep down knew that something wasn't right with it, but clubs particularly um, failed their, their fans on such a massive scale because They must have known if they thought about it, it was wrong, and they didn't stop to think about it. And they didn't look at building anything that might have had any kind of long term value. They went in as hard as they could to get as much money as they could back, and mostly clubs didn't get that much back. But the people, but they got that money and they converted into cash, and that went in their bank accounts. And everyone who bought something ended up getting completely wiped out, and it's just oh so terrible.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a theme throughout the whole of the book that that willingness to to kind of look the other way, just focus on the bottom line, how much money can we get through the door um, is, is the thing that seems to run through this. And, you know, you see it with some of the really, some of the very worst examples with the kind of lack of due diligence at Man City that you talked about, you know, uh, examples of, of um, fans reacting really badly to um, crypto schemes like Hex who wanted to sponsor Barnsley at one point. But then there's also some examples that have become more mainstream and established and one of the really interesting chapters i thought was the one about socios who are probably the most high profile tie up between the crypto firm and uk football clubs i mean first of all you know you're the expert how how would you describe socios and their kind of business model
2: well i mean given how much i detest socios i think i want to at least first acknowledge that they still exist so despite the crypto crash And the problems with their business model, they're still here. Um, But what they pitched themselves was as a fan engagement tool. So you buy some of their fan tokens and that allows you to vote on club business, which at a high level kind of sounds fine, right? If you you were offered the opportunity to have some direct involvement in your club uh, and a chance to vote on things, you might think that was okay. Um, At the exchange, buying these tokens, the club gets 50% of the sale price. We're in effect doing nothing but licensing the badge and the name. And in the boom days of crypto some premier league clubs made out like bandits from that you know they made some of them made more than 10 million pounds a year um but what you once you dig down into it the first thing you notice is that these votes are incredibly meaningless stuff you know like what message should be stitched on the inside of a captain's armband for this game or what design of pendant should we have for a pre-season game so like really really like mind-numbingly stupid things Uh, but for some reason you also notice that look there's no limit on the number of tokens you can buy and there's no limit on the number of clubs you can buy tokens in. Um, and the clubs are saying, you know, definitely this isn't about trading. It's not a speculation. No, definitely not. But, you know, go on the app and you notice there's a trading section which shows the price of the tokens. And the tokens seem to go up and down massively and not in connection at all with the on-field performance of the club. Um, and so what it really it becomes quite obvious that it is a it is a disguised crypto recruitment scheme. You know, what you have is clubs are given this this huge surplus of, of, to- of, of, of fan tokens. And the company itself produces billions of crypto units that you have to buy to be able to purchase the tokens. So they create this market out of thin air. And if enough people get involved in it, if enough people buy the tokens, it inflates the value of the underlying crypto and of the tokens themselves. And the people who issued these things themselves at zero cost can become exceptionally wealthy. Um, And so that in itself, the whole thing is is structured in a way that if you were trying to create a fan engagement project, product, you wouldn't begin from here. Every single bit has been designed to create a market. But beyond that, the way the thing that I think is most sinister that isn't immediately apparent is because they only sell a small portion of these tokens at the beginning, and the whole the larger reserve of tokens, maybe like 90% of the total, sits with the club. So you have a situation where fans are buying tokens, they see the price go up. That's great. Looks like they've made some money. As soon as the price hits a nice level, the club can throw some more tokens onto the market. They don't have to give anyone any warning about this. And they take fifty percent of that. And so you got they're they're financially incentivized by the structure of it, Crash the price of their own fans' investment. And that's actually happening. Man City um did that. Their tokens were at about twenty five pounds, uh, having started at two pounds, then in the middle of twenty twenty one they threw another million onto the market and that slashed the price of the tokens. So you you, you create a mo- The thing where not only are you given this false sense of engagement and monetizing what ought to be free, but actually you're now playing this kind of investment game where the whale in the market is your own club and you're the plankton on which they're feeding. Almost every aspect of it, I find immensely troubling and deeply disreputable. And I long for the day when they go under so I can celebrate.
3: Yeah, I mean, it. it Struck me that there was uh, there were echoes in Socios' business model of what you discussed at length in your book, your last book, Fit and Proper People, where you you know in that you talked about a company called Owner FC who tried to get football fans to part with their money to own a tiny share in a, an unspecified football club, um, but both Owner FC and Socios to market their model as like be more than just a fan, and you know I find that objectionable anyway because being a fan is is quite enough. In and of itself, you know, you turn up to games, support your club, you might volunteer or help out if you can. But in both cases, like there's an obvious subtext. With ORFC, it was that you were basically helping a, an unfit and improper person to take over a club in your name. And with Socios, the fan token you're buying can only be bought using their cryptocurrency. And that's the real thing that they're selling. It's this like passively or not so passively encouraging you to to trade your token and your crypto in ways that benefit them. Uh, and the club that's jumped into to bed with them generally, like to the disadvantage of the average fan who who might be invested.
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. It's it's it, in my view a completely meritless thing. And the challenge you always have with this stuff is you, you say is like not just you know, does this do what it says, it is, but is there a better and cheaper way? Yeah. Why do you need to have blockchain involved? Why do you need to buy and trade these cryptocurrency units? Why is it just a single fixed price thing? Why do Arsenal have forty million of them? Yeah. When you know, Arsenal have got at most a couple of hundred thousand registered fan members, it's, it's all utterly, utterly superfluous. You, if you really want to know what your fans think, and we know deep down that most clubs do not want to know what their fans think, you can ask them. It, it would be really easy to do this stuff at zero cost and directly engage only the people who are game-going fans or, or regularly and have some deep ownership and connection to club. That's not what they're doing, regardless of how they, they, what they, how they pitch themselves to the public.
3: You know, with this and with some of the other examples you've talked about, another really strong theme throughout the book is the the tribal way which, um, in which crypto investors behave. You know, I've seen you on Twitter asking legitimate questions about, you know, cryptocurrencies like, uh, well, we yeah, we've already mentioned HEX currently valued at 0.008 cents per, uh, per crypto coin. Uh, but, you know, whenever you question that stuff, you get lambasted by, fans of that currency for want of a better word and it struck me that there's a real parallel because you know you're also quite outspoken about things like the the ethical shortcomings of Newcastle United's um, Saudi ownership and you often get heavily criticized by Newcastle fans who can't conceive that there's anything remotely problematic about being owned by a dictatorship and I just wonder like more broadly whether you think that the blind loyalty of sports fans to their team make them the ideal target for crypto marketeers because they hope that they'll Display that same uncritical lens towards financial products.
2: I mean, yes, I, I do think there's there's something very strongly in that, and you know, one of the you know social media has been phenomenal for helping people connect with communities that they might not otherwise have been able to, and and you know just us all see the, the thousand different hidden aspects of people's lives, which is wonderful and amazing. But the other side of it, I think, is undeniable, is that it, it does create really crazy tribalism and you know like you say you, you say anything about Newcastle United and, and it's you, you should see the dms they get the minutest of things if you say um, i mean manchester united manchester city any of those large clubs anything remotely critical even if it's well sourced piece of journalism will bring an enormous amount of of completely unfair um unpleasant uh, attacks and you know there is something dark i think in, in almost all of us and there is something problematic about the way we allow certain elements of our lives to define our our identities to that degree. And you know, like you say, it's some of the, the cryptocurrency people, they were like that on steroids because they, they are financially invested in these products. The success of their investments demands more people buying into it. They cannot tolerate any disagreement about that. And um so yeah, I, I think there is definitely an element of this because I think that we we know no one thinks that football fans are monks. No one thinks that, you know, we, we know that the deals that our clubs endorse are paid things. You know, we know that when Manchester United advertise a new travel partner or a new suitcase or a new coffee maker, we know that's not the best on the market. We know that's not the one the players use. But what it, 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 it gets to a point, because we live in a, you know, a democracy with a, a sophisticated market economy, fans have a right to expect that the things that are advertised will at least work. If it's a car that will be safety tested, you know, if it's a if it's a food product, the factory will have been inspected for hygiene. And in the case of crypto, football fans in football clubs endorsed investments that, even if they weren't outright frauds, were unregulated and had zero consumer protection. Um, and I think that's the problematic thing: is that Man City fans didn't think Three Key was going to be the best cryptocurrency around, but they had a right, I think, to expect that um, that the the thing was still going to exist in two weeks afterwards, you know, that it wasn't going to be a compl- front for a fraud. And so fans weren't gullible necessarily, but they were conned and that con did involve playing on their loyalty and their reasonable expectation that their club would not completely hang them out to dry and completely disregard any sense of, of ethics and responsibility. So you see quite a lot of people saying, oh, to, oh you know, I always knew crypto was a con, you know, and those idiots lost money, ha, ha, ha. I, you know, I... I- <laughs> I think even idiots need protection, and I think that e- even the best of us can, on occasions, be victims of fraud. And particularly, we know that football clubs, while they don't necessarily determine all of our of our purchases, they are hugely powerful um, global brands. You know, a, a lot of the one of the reasons I think why this story is less well known in the UK is because, although you know, maybe a few Arsenal fans have lost a few tens of pounds on their on their fan tokens, and a few people might have invested in Hex and lost a few few grand that what happened is that the you know, that these clubs which are global billboards, crypto companies came to them knowing that they, the clubs were not were desperate for money in a time of COVID and that they could use that to broadcast themselves around the world to places where people um not only know about these brands and have trust in them. Um, you know, so just going back to the Fulham thing, one of the one of the Fulham uh they were connected to this company Titan Capital Markets. And they were stealing money from people in you know, church halls in Ghana and rented offices in Malaysia. And the first slide of their presentation deck, it has the picture of the CEO, who's a a a personal operator under a false identity, who Fulham didn't bother to find out what his real name is, and he's surrounded by cardboard cutouts of Fulham. And the next deck is the next slide in the deck is him standing in Craven Cottage, and then him in the changing rooms, and him shaking hands with the commercial director. Um, and on part of the writing, like a kid, you not, it's part. Of it, they said. You can trust this because at Fulham, London's oldest club, that's what they claim. I don't know if that's true, but London's oldest club would not sign a deal with someone who they did not believe to be reputable. But that was part of their pitch to people who were in many places, yeah, you know, there's poor banking access or the currency is weak or there's high levels of inflation. Even five or ten dollars a day that you can make trading crypto could be massively transformative to your your life chances. And so, you know, the dark truth about football and crypto is that The deals took place over here. The the British clubs, they they signed deals. that got tens, maybe more, millions of pounds. But the harm was done to the tune of billions in in the global South, in places where people don't have any voice. And football has got away with it, in my view, in part because they took that tribal nature of people because they know that people will instinctively have some trust in them, even if they don't believe that it's the best product, they believe that they can at least rely on it and that people exploited that to, um, to harm some people who, who really desperately needed a few thousand pounds and may well have lost their life savings. Sorry, that was a, another <laughs> crazy long answer, but you know the, I think that's the, the scale of what we're talking about here, is not just um, poor practice by clubs, but poor practice that directly harmed some of the world's poorest people, and they've got away with it. Uh,
3: yeah, and the, the kind of global nature of it um, is, is kind of integral to whole, the whole thing as well, not just because crypto firms can flog their wares you know throughout the world but also they can claim all sorts of things about where they may or may not be regulated so you know new uh, at the risk of being parochial last season newport county had a, a crypto exchange firm sniffing around us and many of us kind of felt uneasy about that and tried to kind of question it or warn others on uh, on twitter that you know this is a, a kind of unregulated um area of financial services only to be told by the um uh, by the, the crypto exchange themselves or their fans that, you know, we needed to like educate ourselves and that they are regulated but out in Gibraltar and, you know, all of this stuff. And I, I, I kind of, I suppose that's a critical point. You know, you've already said um, and, and you mentioned it in the book that, you know, if your club is sponsored by a a, a car company, then their cars have to be NCAP safety tested and, you know, credit cards are regulated by the FCA and and there's all sorts of other requirements. But with crypto, there's no, trading standards no ombudsman it's um you know you're just kind of taking this this huge risk do you think that any kind of uk regulation around crypto is is realistic um or going to happen anytime soon
2: well, well quietly the regulation has happened and you know, blink and you might have missed it so um around about october time last year um there was a change previously the only body with any oversight over crypto in the uk was the asa but all non-nft crypto so you know, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, fan tokens, all of those stuff. The the, the fungible um, to- uh, tokens are now regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, um, which in many ways is worse because now um, crypto companies and promoters. So, if a football club signs a deal now, they must be a registered promoter, and the company that they're reg- that they're um, flogging must also be with the F- FCA unless they do a kind of a a little fandango where they pretend that they're not actually promoting it to the UK customers. Um, But what it does mean now is they can say we're FCA regulated, but it's regulation in the sense of it's essentially, if it goes under, there is no comeback at all. There is no kind of support scheme as there would be if you were ripped off on your credit card or if your pension went down. Uh, Individuals don't have um, the kind of FCA approval that you'd get with large companies whereby their house, for example, could be seized If if the company um, engaged in malfeasance, and there's no suggestion that um, UK law enforcement authorities have any interest or ability to police uh, fraud, so whether through the scheme collapsing, which is mostly what happens to them, or whether people running off with it, you still likely lose all your money. For me, I, I see no reason really why those these transactions should be allowed in the UK or processed. A lot of people still believe deep down that there's something transformative in the technology, but. The question is, why hasn't it transformed anything? When's this going to happen? Why are there no real use cases of it that aren't distinctly dodgy? Um, so my concern is that really the government has done something which seems to satisfy a lot of people. Bitcoin is surging again at the moment. And and really, because clubs are not being asked and, and football as a, as a game is not being asked to take any responsibility for it that we are ripe for exactly the same thing again, that they will start. You know, we've seen Chelsea and Tottenham recently sign these deals, they start pushing this stuff out. And as Bitcoin keeps going up, people will start to think that something fundamental has changed. And you know, The regulation in the US that allows for um, uh, kind of exchange-traded products will make, make people think that this is now a legitimate thing. Whereas what it is, they've regulated the ability to, to gap to speculate on the future price of Bitcoin. So I, I'm deeply concerned that in many ways, Um, maybe it won't be quite as large as it was last time, but people will get confused into thinking that it's properly regulated when it it really isn't. And the clubs will feel they have a kind of a plausible deniability for getting involved in this stuff again. And so I worry that, again, people are going to fall victim to bad investments. I really hope that I'm wrong, but uh, the signs are not good.
3: Well, on on that happy note, uh, as they say... (laughs) um, yeah no thank you martin um really appreciate you um coming on and, and giving us your time this afternoon uh, the book is called no questions are asked how football joined the crypto con um it's available from amazon amongst others we'll make sure that there's a, a link in the show notes i really really do strongly recommend it it's a, a really excellent read and um yeah really appreciate your time this afternoon thank you
2: Thank you so much and it's always great to speak to you and your colleagues and it's it's a genuine honor again as I say, to say to be invited on to such a prestigious podcast and I really appreciate the time you t- spent reading the book and, and thinking about those questions I, I hope that it's been useful to your audience
3: yeah it's been fantastic yeah really appreciate it thank you um that more or less wraps up today's episode um we won't be doing a match pod next weekend because can're away at franchise FC who don't don't deserve to exist um instead we will be bringing you uh, an interview with Chris Kerwin from South Wales Argus and Louis V Cartwright-Walls, Newport County's media officer, where they talk us through what it was like being at the centre of that media storm ahead of and during the big Man United Cup tie last month. Um, A really good listen. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. That will be in your feeds next weekend. Uh, in the meantime, our thanks, as always, to Tinty in the Bucket Hats for our theme tune, uh, to Reese for speaking with me earlier, for Martin uh, for for speaking just now about the book, and thanks, as always, to you for listening. Look after yourselves, look after each other, and above all, as always, keep it can'ty. <laughs>